Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Chapter 26 marks a new division in Matthew's gospel. The chapter begins as Jesus predicts his death in verses 1 and 2, and the religious leaders plot his death in verses 3 through 5. Preparation is going to be made for his death throughout the chapter, including in verses 6 through 13. And so as we read this passage, we should ask ourselves the question, how, how, how will Jesus prepare for his death? And in part, as the chapter unfolds, a woman will pour valuable perfume on his body as an act of sacrificial worship. In verses 6 through 13, the Lord Jesus reminds us that the woman does this to prepare his body for burial and that prophetically it will be spoken about whenever and wherever the gospel is preached. Later in an upper room, Jesus will celebrate Passover with his disciples and he'll bring fresh meaning to that ancient celebration. Jesus reveals that his body and blood are the true elements that free us from sin and reconcile us to God in verses 26 through 30. The end of the chapter will close with prophecies about those who desert him and deny him in verses 31 through 35. It will include the fulfillments of those prophecies in verses 69 through 75. The chapter is full of prophecies, prayers, and persecutions. Jesus will be arrested in verses 47 through 56, accused in verses 57 through 66, and then a frantic attempt will be made as the religious leaders try to gather false witnesses to testify against Jesus. Jesus will prepare for his death with acts of worship. He's going to remain faithful to God's plan. He's going to submit to God's plan. And so we look at his prediction of death. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings... The sayings that are being spoken of is all that we learned throughout chapter 24 and all that we learned about in chapter 25 as Jesus gave his sermon about how things are going to unfold at the end of history. He says, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
The Lord Jesus predicts his death after denouncing the religious leaders and preaching that great sermon. The sermon, remember, remember, began in Luke chapter 24, verse 3. And again, here the text is shifting to a brand new topic. There's going to be a very brief flashback in verses 6 through 11 and verses 14 through 16. Because Matthew is setting the stage for the public execution of our Lord, Jesus. Jesus predicts his death for the fourth and final time. Remember, he predicted his death in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. And now, Jesus doesn't just simply predict his death. He's going to predict the kind of death that he is going to die. It's not going to be a heart attack. It's not going to be stoning. It's a specific kind of death. It's death on a cruel cross. The Old Testament is filled with images, pictures, symbols, outright prophecies of the death of the Jewish Messiah. Herbert Lockyer likened it to a crimson highway that no matter where you go in the Old Testament, no matter where you slice in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it bleeds a red crimson cord. The plan of God was always that Jesus would die for the sin of the world. And Jesus was tasked to die before he was ever born. According to the Bible, the plan began before the foundation of the world. And the reason why this is important is that the death of Jesus isn't an afterthought. It isn't plan B. The cross isn't an afterthought. It, it isn't just simply the cruel and despicable act of evil men. God always intended that Jesus would die for sinners. And so the Lord predicts the manner of his death, crucifixion. The timing of his death during the feast of the Passover. And again, we have hints throughout the whole Old Testament. It began in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Isaiah hints that when the Trinity counseled within the Godhead, God the Father said, whom will I send? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The immediate response of Jesus is, here I am. Send me, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. If Jesus was tasked to die for sin before the foundation of the world, before there was ever even one human sinner, Jesus became the Savior. God provided the Savior. Before humans were ever sinners. When Abraham offered his son Isaac. His only son according to Genesis chapter 22. Whom he loved. God purposed that he wouldn't receive the treasure of Abraham's son Isaac. 
but rather he would receive the treasure of Abraham's son, Isaac's son, Jacob's son, the Lord Jesus. Abraham's was a test of obedience because God would make himself the sacrifice. Isaac was spared the knife, but God's son wouldn't be spared the cross. The pages of Leviticus fairly drip with blood. The Lord inspired Moses to write in Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And so we discover something early on. Salvation is always by grace. It's always by faith. It's always by blood. It's always by a person. Herbert Lockyer writes, quote, from the first lamb offered by Abel to the last lamb offered under the law dispensation, the sacrifice was a pattern of, quote, the lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, like it says in John chapter 1, verse 29. All of human history. All of human history from Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Elijah and David and Solomon and all of the prophets were pointing to this singular event. It was going to this singular situation. It's Calvary's cross. Herbert Lockyer writes, quote, the day Jesus died will remain the most momentous day in the history of the earth. Because it was then that the cross became heaven's trysting place where heaven's love and justice meet and righteousness and peace kissed each other, unquote. We don't use that word anymore, trysting. A trysting place in the ancient times was a secret place where men and women would go to express their affection, and their love for one another. It's interesting to me, the cross is that place. This is the place where God is going to express his love for you. Jesus has a divine appointment with death, and the appointment has to be kept. The king has predicted his death, and even at the moment that Jesus predicts his death, the religious leaders are plotting his death. And it's interesting to me, God's timetable won't be hurried along. It won't be prematurely unfolded, and it will not be neglected. It will not be delayed indefinitely. The death of Jesus won't be hurried or delayed by the schemes of wicked people. Paul wrote in the book of Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. That's Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. Jesus appears on the planet and his ministry unfolds, not too late, not too soon, right on time. His life, his death, orchestrated, 
according to a divine plan. What's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't just simply predict his own death. He predicts your death as well. Did you know that? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus said, And he that taketh not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. You see, in the Roman culture and society, if you ever woke up on any given morning and you took a cross that morning, the day would end with your death. Do you know how many people escaped the cross? Zero. Do you know how many came down and survived? Zero. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. In Luke 9.23 it says, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged? Or what will a human being gain if he or she gains the whole world and loses himself or is cast away? The critics and the skeptics are hard-pressed to explain away the death of Jesus. Unbelievers usually have no problem believing that a real Jesus lived and a real Jesus died. But when you ask them the question, how did this happen? How in the world did the best man, the greatest human being who ever lived, how did he find himself on a Roman cross in the city of Jerusalem? Their problem isn't that he died. Their problem is, why did he die? They'll say, it's obvious. Jesus upset the social order. Jesus threatened the religious establishment. Jesus told the truth. They couldn't let him live. They had to kill him. And I'm going to suggest to you all of that is true. But there's more. There's way more. John MacArthur writes, quote, Unbelieving skeptics have long tried to explain away Jesus' death as a quirk of faith, the unintended termination of a well-meaning revolution that was discovered and crushed or the sad end to the delusions of a madman. Others picture Jesus as a visionary whose dreams were ahead of his of the age in which he lived or as a prophet who overstated his claims and thereby roused the ire of the religious establishment. But such assertions do not square with the gospel accounts and are blasphemous. According to the Bible, he came to die for you. For your sin. There's an old fable about a man who made an unusual agreement with death. He told the grim reaper that he would willingly accompany him when it came time to die. But only on the condition that death would send a messenger well in advance to warn him. The agreement was made. Weeks turned into months. 
months turn into years. Then one bitter winter evening as the man sat alone thinking about all of his material possessions, death suddenly entered the room and tapped on his shoulder. The man was startled and he he cried out in despair. You're here too soon. You're here too soon. We had an agreement. We made a deal. (laughs) Death replied, I kept my end of the bargain. I kept my part. I've sent many messengers. Get up. Look at yourself in the mirror and you'll see some of those messengers. And as the man complied, death whispered, Notice your hair. Once it was full and black. Now it is thin and white. Look at the way you lean your head to one side to listen to my voice. Because you don't hear as well as you used to. Observe how close you have to get to the mirror in order to see yourself clearly. I've sent messenger after messenger throughout the years. I kept my part. Too bad you didn't keep yours. I'm sorry you're not ready. But the time has come to leave. According to the Bible, we all have to face death. We all receive warnings, and the loudest and the clearest warnings come from the Bible. The soul that sins, the Bible says, it shall surely die. The Bible says it's appointed once for a human being to die, and then comes the judgment. We have warnings. We have repeated warnings. We're told to repent of our sin. We're told to listen to the sweet, compelling voice of the Holy Spirit who tells us repeatedly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Christ and you will be saved. Seek him while he may be found. Keep your date with death. Isaiah 55 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is why the Bible says he's near to those who are crushed in spirit. Ambrose Bierce wrote, quote, die to stop sinning suddenly. That's how he defined death. All of a sudden, you don't sin anymore at all. Someone said, many who plan to seek God at the 11th hour, unfortunately, die at 1030. My favorite, Woody Allen. He said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by living forever and not dying. The reason why I think that is so funny is because he's going to be prepared to be disappointed. Because the truth is, like everyone else, one day you may live long enough to hear the report of his death. I remember having, of all people on my radio program, Pat Boone, and it was the day that Michael Jackson died. And there was a time when, Michael, when Pat Boone was bigger than Elvis and, and bigger than Michael Jackson. 
And I said, Pat, there's going to come a day when ABC, NBC, and CBS and CNN report your death. They're going to talk about your television career. They're going to talk about your hit songs. They're going to talk about this and they're going to talk about that. And they're going to talk about all of the things that you did. But they might leave something out if you could tell them what you want to make sure that everyone needs to hear. What would you say? And Pat Boone says, well, Gino, I think you know. It's that I loved Jesus and I trusted Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. The unbeliever sees death as uncharted territory. The believer knows that death isn't the last sleep. Walter Scott said, it's the final awakening. Charles Kingsley wrote, quote, it is not darkness you're going to for God is light. It's not lonely because Christ is with you. It's not unknown country because Christ is there. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, it says, for he says, in an acceptable time, I've heard you and the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So how should the Christian think about death? In this chapter, we're going to learn that Jesus prepares for his death by worshiping God, by remaining faithful to God, by submitting to God. In this chapter, Mary anoints Jesus alive with precious perfume in an act of sacrifice and worship. Judas balks and he says, we should give the money to the poor in verses 6 through 13. It's going to create a dilemma. Worship or waste? Jesus will take his disciples to the upper room to celebrate Passover in verses 20 through 29. Jesus is going to ask his disciples to follow a man who has a pitcher of water. And then he's going to announce that one of them will betray him in verses 14 through 19. And so here we have this other dilemma. Who will betray him and who will be faithful to him? They camp on the Mount of Olives opposite the Temple Mount in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to pray and agonize over his upcoming death in verses 30 through 56. Will he resist God or will he submit to God's plan? And so we see Jesus prepares for death by worship. By serving, by faithfulness, by submission. Here's my question to you. Will you? Will you prepare for your death by worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord, being faithful to the Lord, submitting to the Lord? Will I? Have you ever wanted to go to Jerusalem. I've been there many, many times. You know what the good news is? Each and every one of you will one day be there. I guarantee it. You will one day show up in Jerusalem, either with this mortal body or with an immortal body. Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. 
And each and every one of us, in a very real sense, is on our way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will die. And each and every one of you are headed in a direction to that place where you will meet your maker. Each and every one of us will go to the place ordered by God to comply with God. And we will do so gladly or reluctantly because in a very real sense, we all have a cross and we all have a destiny. Lewis Evely writes, quote, We all know that a Christian must bear a cross. In theory, we're all prepared to accept one. But you will no doubt have noticed that the cross that comes our way is never the right one. The cross we bear, our health, our face, our circumstances, our family, our job, our failure, our success, always seem to us an intolerable, mean, humiliating, harmful thing. Desperately, we call for another. We go, I understand that I have a cross, but could you give me a different cross? A cross made to fit us. He writes, a cross which will be bearable, spiritual, elevating, beneficial to ourselves and others, unquote. But according to the Bible, our cross is Jesus' cross. Our cross is the instrument of our own death whereby we make the choice each and every day to live for him and love him and submit to him. It is the instrument of death. A.W. Tozer rightly wrote, quote, We must do something about the cross and one of two things only we can do. Flee from it or die on it. Unquote. What will you do? Will you run from it? Or will you accept it? Well, does this mean that all Christians have to die on a literal cross? Of course not. Oswald Chambers wrote, quote, The cross is the pain involved in doing the will of God, unquote. It's, it's God's will that you receive Jesus as your Savior. It's God's will that you live for him. It's God's will that you love him. It's God's will that you serve him. It's God's will that you believe the Bible. It's God's will that you resist the devil. And by the way, all of those things is going to create pain and bring about opposition because it always involves sacrifice. Our cross isn't simply restricted to painful circumstances. John Howard Yoder writes, quote, The believer's cross is no longer any and every kind of suffering, sickness, tension, the bearing of which is demanded. The believer's cross must be like his Lord's, the price of his social nonconformity. It is not like sickness or catastrophe or an inexplicable, unpredictable suffering. It is the end of a path freely chosen after counting the cost. It's the social reality of representing an unwilling to an unwilling world the order to come it's his way of saying guess what when you sing the song i've decided to follow jesus no turning back you're going to be met with opposition following jesus literally means going where he goes so the moment you say i want to follow you you need to also ask the question, where are you going, Jesus? 
where is this following going to lead me? In the New Testament, for his disciples, it always leads to Jerusalem. It's going to always lead to this day. It means not just simply going where he goes. It means saying what he says. The cross is God's instrument to erase self. The cross is I crossed out. And so where will you find your cross? Don't worry. It will find you. Thomas Akempis wrote, The cross is always ready, everywhere, in wait for you. You cannot escape it. Wherever you run, wherever you go, you carry yourself with you and you will always find yourself. Turn yourself upwards. Turn yourself inward. Everywhere you go, you will find the cross. Everywhere you must hold tight to patience if you have inward peace and an everlasting crown, unquote. And so the death of Jesus begins with his prediction. And then it continues with the plot. Look what it says in verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas or Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. While Jesus is predicting his death, the religious leaders are plotting his death in the courts of Caiaphas, the high priest. The historian Josephus gives us a little more insight into this particular person. Quite frankly, the only two things that we know about him are, are come from what the New Testament says about him and what Josephus wrote about him. Josephus gives his full name as Joseph, Caiaphas. Josephus tells us that Caiaphas succeeded Simon, the son of Kamit, in the high priesthood around 25 A.D., about two years after the death of Jesus, he was deposed by Vitellius, who was the governor of Syria. And this Vitellius would later become an emperor of Rome. But unable to bear the disgrace, perhaps, and the sting of conscience for the murder of Jesus, according to Josephus, Caiaphas winds up committing suicide about 35 AD or some three or four years after the death of our Lord. And the name Caiaphas means rock. Remember, Simon is called Kepha, Kephas. But Caiaphas might mean rock or it might mean depression. Now, let me make sure I understand because I'm not talking about mental and emotional distress, depression. What I'm talking about, have you ever seen a, a, a gully that was cut into the side of a mountain? It could mean gully. He was the son-in-law of Annas, who also served as the high priest. And in, according to the scripture, the high priest served for life, but the Roman government wouldn't allow that to take place. But apparently, the high priest retained the title, much like in our own culture and society, once you're the president of the United States, it is fit and appropriate to refer to the president in perpetuity as the president. It's a title that he retains for life. 
So little is known about Caiaphas apart from the New Testament and Josephus, but the gospel writers paint the picture of Caiaphas in very dark terms. He is the high priest, but he's also ambitious and deceitful and conniving. Remember, the high priest was tasked with entering the Holy of Holies once a year to offer the sacrifice for the nation. Every time we see Caiaphas in the New Testament, without exception, he is making an attempt to either plot the death of Jesus or fulfill the death of Jesus. Remember, it is Caiaphas who will say, it's better that one man die than that the nation perish. But we're also given a glimpse into just how dark and decadent the religious system had become during the time of Jesus. And there seemed to be only one item as they met. They are meeting and there's only one thing on the legislative or the judicial docket. It's how can we find a way to trap Jesus? How can we get rid of Jesus? How can we make Jesus go away? I want you to look closely in verse 4 at the word trickery. Look what it says. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery. And kill him. The word could be translated by stealth, by cunning. The Jewish leaders know that Jesus is popular. They don't want to antagonize the crowds during the celebration of Passover. They know that Jesus has a large and a loyal following. The religious leaders repeatedly challenged Jesus. And then they were rebuked by Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus made accusations against them in verse 23. And the religious leaders hated, they hated, they hated the fact that Jesus exposed their impurity and their hypocrisy. Same as today. You live in a world and you live in a culture and you live in a society that hates Jesus exposing their impurity and their hypocrisy. Jesus poses a serious threat to their power and position. And before Jesus could gain any more power, before he can gain any more sympathy, they want to seize him and they want to kill him. And you'll remember what the scriptures say. Everyone, everyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And you might think, there's no one after me. There's no one who wants to kill me. But the Bible says you have an enemy. The Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion. And he is prowling this earth seeking whom he may devour. The leaders have already decided that Jesus has to die. The issue isn't whether or not Jesus is going to die. What they want is an opportunity. And I'm going to suggest to you, remember, remember, they say in this particular passage, look, we want to kill him, but we want to wait until after the Passover is through. And it could very well be that when Judas approaches them with his plan to betray them, that it accelerates the timetable. 
The religious leaders' subtle plots are hatched in secret to preserve their public reputation. And you know what this means for you and for me? You have to understand, you should be aware that behind closed doors, evil plots are concocted to discredit Christ and Christians and Christianity. We all face opposition and sometimes that opposition is private and sometimes that opposition is public. And so right away, each and every one of us should pray for wisdom as we begin to think about, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Lord, how am I to live in Christ Jesus? And don't be naive. The forces of evil are your enemy. They aren't your friend. And I suspect, like I said, that the original plan of the religious leaders is to arrest Jesus, to hold him until after the Passover, wait for the thousands of pilgrims to leave the city of Jerusalem, and then manipulate the Roman authorities to hand down the order of execution. The Passover feast was not a good time to kill people. For the Jew, Passover was like a combination of Christmas and Easter and your birthday all rolled into one. This is a time of joy. This is a time of celebration. This isn't a time for killing people. It's a time for killing lambs. Josephus tells us that as many as 250,000 plus lambs would be slain during the time of the Passover. Think about that. A quarter of a million lambs butchered minute after minute after minute after minute after minute as it goes down the drain and it empties into the Kidron and the river runs bright red with the blood of the lambs. And many of these pilgrims would have come from the Galilee and from Judea. And if there's a quarter of a million lambs and about 10 people to each lamb to celebrate the Passover, Jerusalem could swell to as many as 2 million people. You know what that means? If you took every single human being who lives in the state of Wyoming and Montana, it still would be smaller than <laughs> Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And so, remember, these are the same people who just a week earlier said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And remember, the major source of conflict with the religious leaders is over Jesus' claims. Jesus doesn't just claim to be a Jewish guy. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be God. Remember, the main source of conflict is over his claims of deity. Remember, the main source of conflict is, where did you come from, Jesus? And remember, he told the religious leaders, I came from heaven. Remember, they asked him who his father was, and he said, before Abraham was, I am. Remember, he said, the God that you worship, the one that you call Jehovah, he's my father. In John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, Jesus told them plainly, you do not know where I come from and you don't know where I'm going. Jesus warned them about their unbelief. Therefore, I said to you that you're going to die in your sins. For you don't believe that I am he. You will die in your sins, he says in John 8, 14. The religious leaders say, who are you? And Jesus said, 
just as I've been telling you from the beginning. I have many things to say and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things that I heard from him. According to Jesus, he came from the Father, and the words that he spoke were from the Father. And they didn't understand that he spoke to them of the Father. It says so in John 8, verses 24 through 27. So Passover was the appointed time that God had set aside for the sacrifice of the Messiah in verse 2 and in verse 5. And the Passover, you'll remember, marked the time in Jewish history when the people of God were set free from the bondage of slavery in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. And the Lord was going, you'll remember what happened during that time. The Lord was going to execute that final plague and it was going to consist in the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. And the Lord instructed the angel to pass over all of those dwelling places that were marked with blood. Because salvation has always been by grace. By faith. By blood. The sacrifice of the lamb and the shedding of its blood would speak volumes about another lamb. And now we understand what John the Baptist meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The spotless Lamb of God would spill blood to save his people from the penalty of death brought by sin. And even the hate-filled enemies of Jesus were at the mercy of God. The religious leaders in the past had sought to kill Jesus many times unsuccessfully. Now they're going to plot to postpone his death unsuccessfully. Because God has a plan. And God has a purpose. One of the interesting applications of this scripture is the plots and the powers of darkness to bring harm to God's people. Even though it might be difficult for you to see in this passage, I just want to bring it to your attention that nothing, no nothing can happen to you apart from God's plan and God's purposes. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, we read, You're of God, little children, and you've overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. It might seem that the plans that people have and have concocted towards you might come to fruition, but make no mistake about it. Your life, your future is in his hands. Let me ask you something. Are you interested in the subject of the cross? Oswald Chambers writes, quote, All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning, unquote. Because you see, in the next few weeks, our study in the Gospel of Matthew is going to focus on the cross. We're going to turn our attention to the cross. The German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives great insight into the cross in just a few words. He says, quote, the cross is God's truth about us. And therefore, it is the only power which can make us truthful. 
When we know the cross, we're no longer afraid of the cross, unquote. Like a well-orchestrated movie, the scenes in the chapter are going to move to three more locations. Bethany, we're going to see Mary anoint the body of Jesus with precious perfume. Judas is going to protest this act of love and worship, and he's going to make the claim that the substance might better have been used to minister to the poor. Again, this is the classic dilemma between worship and waste. Next, the scene is going to shift to the upper room where Jesus will wash the feet of the disciples and institute the Lord's Supper and announce the fact that someone's going to betray him to the religious authorities. This is the classic dilemma between faithfulness and betrayal. And then the final scene in the chapter, we're going to have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane agonizing over his upcoming passion and death. This is the classic dilemma between submission to God's will and resisting God's will. But I want to plant the seeds right now. Jesus is going to prepare for his death by worship, by faithfulness, by submission. And I'm going to give you a clue of how you can prepare for your own by worship. By faithfulness, by submission. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, we know that sometimes things can be frightening. But Lord, we pray that we would walk into the future that you've ordained for us. Lord, I think of the song that we sing, Lord. And on that day when my strength is fading, I'll sing your song again. Lord, each and every one of us are going to come to that place of humility. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be found worshiping you. Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful in Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would be found in a place of submission to the task that you've assigned to us in Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that man, I pray for that woman who finds himself and herself in dilemmas of whether to worship or not worship, whether to be faithful or not faithful, whether to resist God or to submit to Him. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen that man, that woman, for the task at hand. That, Lord, we would turn from our sin and we would turn to the Savior and that we would be found in Jesus complete. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.